0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. And now will you stand with me as we turn to the Word of God, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. The words of Christ, not the final words of this sermon, but the penultimate, the next to last, and uh, very, very famous. These words of the sermon are famous throughout, but boy, these are famous warnings that we come to at the end. And so I encourage you to pay close attention as we read from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the word of God. It's specifically the words that Jesus spoke at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to speak to us through your word this morning. I thank you for your son and his glory. I thank you for the life he led and the death he died and the resurrection that he lived and was given by you that vindicated him. And I pray, Father, that he will be in our midst, in our homes, with those of us, the small group that's here this morning, Father, that all of us will worship Jesus and know the glory of his love, the glory of being included in him on that last day. Give my words your power, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is a a sermon that calls us to live for God in a holy manner. It turns from that first challenge to a challenge to look for heaven's rewards rather than earth's rewards. And in the final third, Jesus calls us To make judgments, to judge correctly, having having explained what God requires, having explained the consequences, the rewards of following God, he turns now and says, now judge, judge, judge correctly. He begins in this final third, and it's the beginning of this chapter because the chapter is really the final division of of the sermon, by telling them how to judge. He tells those who are listening that they are to judge fairly as they wish to be judged. They're to remove the log from their own eyes before they take the splinter out of the eyes of others. He tells them not to give what is holy to dogs or pearls to swine. In other words, they're to separate wheat from chaff and both in what is holy and what is not holy in, in, in inanimate things, in truths, in doctrine, and also in people. So we're not to give holy things and we're to understand by holy things what are holy things to unholy people, to dogs. We are not to throw... Give pearls, and we understand that a pearl is precious. We're not to give pearls to swine, but to swine you don't give your pearls; you give your your feed corner, that kind of thing. So a lot of discrimination required. And he says he begins right off by saying, "Judge yourself and judge others fairly." Now he says, "And judge what is holy and what is not, both in things and people." He then tells them that God is a generous father, that he does not judge harshly. He's called them not to judge harshly. He reminds them the father is so much more gracious and so much more kind in his judgments, that he does good for children who look at him as a meanie, who look at him as unfair, but he still treats them well. And he calls on us to exercise the same charity with others that the father does with us, to treat others in that way. He tells them to judge the ways of men, that many are on a broad path that leads to destruction, an easy way that leads to death. But they, the, the audience and us, are not to be fooled. They are not to choose, we are not to choose the easy path, but we are to take the path that is narrow and difficult because it is lonely, because it sets us apart and makes us holy, which is what holy means. To be holy is to be set apart for God. And because we are set apart for God, our path is lonely. And because it's lonely and it faces opposition, it is a difficult path. He tells them to watch out for false prophets along the way, to judge carefully who they listen to and who they allow to guide them. And to not allow those who do not worship God, those who do not produce the fruit of God's kingdom... To be their guides, but to only follow those whose fruit is good. And then, as we come to the end, Jesus tells us here that He will one day make judgments. And those judgments that He makes will be based on the judgments that you and I have made. His judgments will reflect our judgments. And so, we are to judge carefully and accurately. And we are to be brave when we judge. We are not to be swayed by men. We are not to be swayed by fear. We are not to be swayed by risk. But we are to judge carefully, accurately, courageously. Our lives, Jesus says, he warns us. He says it here to the crowd and to you and me alike. Our lives depend on it. Our lives depend on our judgments. Our lives will be shaped for eternity by the judgments that we make here on earth. So he calls us, make good judgments. Do not make false judgments. Do not make the easy judgments, the ones that keep you from risk. Judge carefully. So this morning, I invite you to judge your life, to judge this world, to judge Jesus Christ. He's willing to be judged. He says, look at me and look at my way and make a decision. And so he's inviting, him. he's inviting that you make him a feature in your judgment. That you actually judge his way against the ways of the world. And I invite you to make the same judgment. Ask yourself, am I living in a way that leads to eternal life? This is what Jesus is doing to the crowd here. And as he speaks to us this morning, it's what he's doing with you. He is inviting you to embrace judgment, to make right judgments. And if you have never judged correctly, if you have never judged Jesus, the Savior of the world, if you have never known what it is to say, fie on the rest of the world, I love you, God, I love your Son, I turn to your Son, then this is the moment to make that judgment. Turn to Jesus, make the judgments that He calls us to make in this passage. Now there is... In all the Word of God, no more sobering call to judgment than the one that is delivered by Christ in these verses. He has called his disciples to make judgments, and now he warns them that they may be making judgments and may be thinking that those judgments are accurate, and that many who make judgments spiritually, that they think are accurate and that they think are well made and will lead them into good, will find in the end that their judgments were wrong, that they were mistaken, and that they are excluded from the company of God's people on the final day. Jesus teaches us here an essential form of judgment. These verses serve as the summing up of the last third of this sermon. The entire chapter on judgment, the entire final third of the sermon is on judgment and judging. There is a final exhortation to build on the solid rock rather than sand, and that's a warning that that really summarizes the entire sermon. But in these verses, Jesus is making clear that judgment is not what we think it is. It is something other than what we often think. And we need to listen to Jesus at this point. I I encourage you, I I require of you that you not put Jesus' words here on, on, on one side of your brain and to weigh them against other words on the other side of your brain and to decide that you can dismiss Jesus' words here because you have other words that you think may trump them or vitiate them or somehow diminish the threat of them, okay? This is all of our heads This is our entire consciousness and brains right now. This warning, what Jesus says in these verses. Don't go to Paul. Don't go elsewhere. Paul's words are entirely consistent with these. They don't deny this. Paul teaches this doctrine. It's found throughout the New Testament. And so listen to Jesus, the word of God incarnate, the word made flesh as he tells us what it is that he requires if we're going to to come into the presence of his glory in the kingdom to come. In these verses, Jesus makes clear that judgment is not what most of us think that it is. In other words, what Jesus says in these verses is judgment consists of a certain thing. And what he rejects that so many of us as embrace as the essence of judgment is the the form of judgment that many of us have made that is embracing Jesus. That many of us go through life thinking is the right form of judgment. Judgment jesus makes very clear in these verses is not intellectual recognition intellectual recognition is not the judgment that god requires the judgment that god requires is not some form of mental discrimination it is not some form of superior knowledge that leads you to have a more refined understanding Judgment, as God demands it of you, is not seeing failure and recognizing it, nor is it seeing success and wanting it. It is not, in the end, a matter of the mind at all. It is instead a matter of the heart and the hands of the will and the feet. It's amazing how discriminating and willing to discern many people are who are absolutely incapable of doing Have you noticed the arguments that are taking place all over the internet these days because there's no sports? People are debating because of, I think, the recent Last Dance documentary on Netflix about the final championship season of the Chicago Bulls in which it followed the Bulls and especially Michael Jordan. Many people are taking part in the debate over whether Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, the goat of basketball. It seems everyone now has an opinion on it. It's interesting to note that most of those who have strong opinions never played basketball at all, or if they played basketball, they only played through eighth grade. They couldn't describe the triangle offense if you paid them to do so, but they can discriminate. (laughs) They know, they judge. They know that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, or they know that he's not. Only they know, just like you and I know, that the Rolls-Royce is the best automobile that's out there, or that you and I know that caviar is a fine thing, you know, caviar, a fine thing, or that we know that Picasso was a great painter. They discriminate, we discriminate in these kinds of decisions without cost, without involvement, without doing. These are judgments that are not informed by having played basketball or ever tasting caviar or or driving a rolls, never having painted a painting not understanding anything at all that makes Picasso a great painter beyond the fact that everyone says he is. So we're glad to judge, happy to display our knowledge, happy to be thought discerning. And most of the time, we are acting as armchair quarterbacks. We have no firsthand knowledge of the thing that we are criticizing or commending. And so what Jesus says here is that the judgments that lead us to hell, and that's the risk... The judgments that lead us to heaven, that's the reward, are not a matter of mouth or of mind, but of hands and feet. It's not a matter of the words our lips speak or the words that we think in our mind, but of each step you take and each deed you commit. Now, we may think that we judge by standing at a crossroad, reading the sign this way, that way, the two destinations, understanding mentally the choice that is before us in the crossroad and the signs. But Jesus says here, judgment is not the work of your eyes. Judgment is not the reading of the sign at the crossroad, nor is judgment in your mind discerning comprehending what the letters of the signs mean, understanding which direction is which way, which destination is which fork in the road. Judgment, Jesus says, is the choice of your heart that is reflected and determines the steps you take. Every step taken is a choice of the heart. Every step you take is a judgment you have made. Judgment is the way you walk. Judgment is the path you choose. Judgment is the steps you take. Each is a choice, one way over another. Judgment is not a thing of your mind. It is not knowledge. It is not discernment up here. It is a choice of the heart. It is volition, your will, acting. Your heart's choice lived out as inevitably the choices of your heart are lived out by your hands and your feet and the words of your mouth. Your mind does not control your mouth. Jesus says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Your mind does not control your sin. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile a man. The things that defile you come from your heart. Your mind does not choose to do good. Jesus says the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Your mind understands, but your heart chooses. Your hands and feet are the instrument of your judgments, your choice, your volition. What you say with your mouth, what you do, where you go, these are judgments, true judgments. Now what we see revealed in these verses is a picture further of the grace of God. And it's a warning not to to take the grace of God and make it a substitute for right judgment, which so many are doing today. They're saying, well, I have the grace of God. I've tasted the grace of God. The grace of God. Look, it's the grace. And they argue grace against judgment. They say, I don't need to make these judgments of walking. I can do it intellectually. I can say I approve of it because of grace, but I don't have to walk it. Jesus' warning in these verses, do not argue the grace of God over against the call to obedience of God. Over against the judgment that God requires. Grace does not remove the need for judgment. Grace does not obviate judgment. Judgment is a product of grace. Right judgment is enabled by true grace. We have in these verses, spoken by Jesus, a picture of the incredible grace of God to sinners. Understand, this is God's grace to sinners. Grace always comes to sinners, but this grace is given to all men. The grace that God has given us that is designed to win us to him. To to cause us to judge that heaven is a better reward than what the earth offers. God gives grace, God gives glory, God gives strength to people who do not belong to him so that they will judge that heaven is better than earth. God is constantly doing this. The grace of God is designed to win us to God. But it's twisted often by men and made a thing of our desires and our pride that enables us not to live for God rather than giving us the power to obey God. It allows us to stay apart from God rather than driving us to God. And it's meant to drive us to God. God accepts us. God remains gracious even when we presume upon his patience and kindness, which all of us have done at many points in our life. God remains gracious even when we take his grace and make it for our own glory rather than his. God does not immediately put you to death when you do this. He has not done it to me. He hasn't done it to you. God remains gracious when we abuse his grace. But this will end. That's the warning of Jesus. The warning of Christ is there is an end to the offer of grace. For that reason, I invite you to accept the grace of God, to embrace the grace of God. Do it today. Make your life a yes to the grace of God by walking in the way that Jesus describes here. What Jesus warns here is that there is an end ultimately to the grace of God, because he says, some will say, Lord, Lord, to me in the last day. And notice that Jesus here, I remember years ago, a man who was a leader in a church that I was very much affiliated with, writing a letter to the pastor and saying, Jesus never claims authority in his life. Jesus is only a come-alongside helper. He never claims authority. Well, if he had, not, if he had made that claim as an elder, then he must have never read the Sermon on the Mount. He never heard Jesus say, I'm going to say, away from me. He never read that the crowd at the end of the sermon said, wow, this man speaks with authority. Jesus speaking right here is speaking with authority. This is the authority of God. He's saying who's going to enter heaven. Some will say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus on the last day, the day of judgment, and he will say, "Uh uh-uh, no. And that will be the most disheartening, fearful, fearsome, no of our lives, no. We'll be saying, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, no, no. They will not be recognized by him, yet they will have known his power, they will have tasted his grace, they will have been entrusted with the fruits of his spirit, but he will say to them, no, I never knew you. Now, what's obvious from what Jesus says here is that those who are rejected, those that Jesus tells, I never knew you, will be saying to him on that day. He's quoting them. He's, they're going to say, We know you, Jesus. We know you. In fact, you're our Lord. By addressing him, Lord, Lord, they claim reverence and respect. Lord, Lord is not a statement of mere acquaintance, it implies submission, it claims obedience. It says, hey, you're my savior. Hey, I've worshiped you. You're my God. They're not the words of people who think themselves rebels. Those who say, Lord, Lord, well, they thought they were part of him, part of his church, redeemed by him, carried to God by his work on the cross of, Cal- of, of Calvary. They attended church. They said amen, along with the fellow worshipers. They raised their hands and worship. They taught in Sunday school. They think they're there. They think they're included. But notice beyond this, and here we see the grace of God to sinners so very richly, they have, beyond words, they have actually wielded the power of God. They say to Jesus, did we not in your name cast out demons? In other words, weren't we at your side in this great battle with Satan? We took your side. We did your deeds. In Jesus' name, they also prophesied. They spoke the word of God, and they applied it to the lives of others. In Jesus' name, they performed many miracles. Now, we might think that Jesus should reject these people and say, away from me, I never you, you, because (laughs) let's be clear. What you thought you did, you never did. Those were fake miracles. You just faked it. You never really did those things. Or perhaps we might think he should say, yeah, okay. Yeah. You claim me as your Lord, but you did these things by Satan's power, not mine. You cast out demons by the power of the devil. That's why I'm sending you away. You never had my power? Well, let me say to you, remember... Jesus was accused by the scribes of casting out demons by the prince of demons. In his own ministry, he gets accused of this. And the implication, of course, is that he himself is satanic, that he is a prince of demons, and that Satan possesses him in the works that he does. And so Jesus calls the scribes that are accusing him of this to him. And we read in, earlier in Mark, we actually find it... Uh, er, Early in Mark, I should say, we find him speaking to them. He speaks to them in parables. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. What he says is, how can Satan cast out Satan? Satan can't cast out Satan. It's impossible for him to turn on himself. When Satan is cast down, it's always by the power of God. When demons are cast out, they're cast out only by the power of God. If Satan is divided against himself in casting out demons by his own power or by his own associates, then he has divided his kingdom. And so what Jesus makes very clear is that When Satan is cast out, it's by God's power. And so, the implications are clear. If these men have cast out demons, they haven't done it by Satan's power. They have done it by God's power. Jesus does not deny that those who say, Lord, Lord, knew him. He does not deny that they did great miracles by his power. He does not deny the truth of their miraculous deeds their having prophesied. He does not deny that they did miracles by the power of God. There's only one thing he denies, and that's that he ever knew them. Now, if you're mystified by this, I encourage you to read through the Bible. Read it. Read it again. Read it. Because what you'll find is that what I'm saying is in absolute accord with the message of Scripture. You don't know the the Bible very well if you find objection to what I've just said, that God gives those who don't know him, those he never knew, power. Or perhaps you misapprehend the awesome grace of God who gives power and grace and mercy and understanding to those who are not his at all, those who were never his. Remember earlier in this sermon that Jesus said that God is good to all men, causing his rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, making the sun to rise on both the evil and the good? When he said that, you didn't think, did you, that the goodness of God is only found in the rain and the light, the sun and the water of the world. You, you understood that beyond God giving rain and sunshine to the wicked and the good alike, that God gives many gifts, that God's goodness extends throughout many areas of life. You understood that, I hope. That that's not just a very limited statement of how God is good to the unjust. You know, don't you, that Judas was included with the other disciples, was not discriminated against, though Jesus knew who he was from the beginning, that he did the miracles that they did, he was not excluded from that when he went out, that he cast out demons with them. They came back and said, Lord, Lord, demons are subject to us in your name. They rejoiced. No indication at any point that. That Judas was excluded from this number. In fact, (laughs) Jesus said this about Judas. Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus chose Judas knowing that he was a devil. Jesus gave his power and his word to Judas knowing from the outset that he was a devil. We read Peter say in Acts 1 on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, He speaks among the group of of the brothers, which numbered 120 at the time. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He received a share of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 6 makes very clear that there are those who have received a share in the spirit and yet are not received into heaven. Those who were never ultimately chosen by God. He received a share in the ministry, the word, the power of the kingdom of God. He worked miracles. He cast out demons. He didn't do it by Satan, by Baal Zabul. If he did it by the prince of demons, then Jesus' argument about himself and his casting out of demons has no weight and in fact is wrong. We find in Scripture that many men and women receive power, receive beyond power mercy, receive beyond mercy glory from God, even supernatural power, mercy, and glory, and yet they remain ultimately men and women who do not know God or serve him and glorify him. This is the mercy of God. This is the grace of God. It's great because it comes to unrepentant sinners. Not everyone Jesus healed, thanked him, or worshipped him. There were two thieves on the cross beside Christ. Only one opened and went through the door that Jesus offered. The grace of God and the power of God are enjoyed by unrepentant sinners. The word of God comes to those who don't know God. Saul was rejected by God when he went among the prophets and prophesied. Balaam, an evil man, a false prophet, yet he prophesied truth by the Spirit of God. Nebuchadnezzar was given the word of God and the ability to repent, and yet he remained a king who vaunted himself against God. Yet he speaks the words about God that we find in Daniel that are the strongest words perhaps in Scripture of how sovereign God is. He understands God. He knows God. He's been given the gift of repentance by God, yet he is ultimately not a child of God. Janus and Jambras, Remember those names. Pharaoh's magicians. They did great works, but they didn't do those works by Satan's power. They did them by God's sovereign will. Satan can do nothing that God has not allowed him to do. God is good to sinners. He gives gifts to sinners. He is patient with them, kind towards them. And it's for a reason. And that reason is told us by Paul who writes, But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things... And do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. And I'm talking about wicked people. He says if you look at them and you pass judgment on these things. And yet you do the same yourself. Will you escape the judgment of God? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you think judgment is in the mind. And not lived out by obedience. That obedience is the judgment that God desires. That obedience is the faith that Christ requires. If you think it's all in the mind. Well, you're against Jesus and Paul. But do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, do the same yourself and you say, I know the truth, that you will escape the judgment of God? These are the ones who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Then Paul writes, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God shares His glory, his power, his word, his strength with wicked men. It is his kindness and it's intended for their repentance. If God has been kind to you and you have not chosen to follow him, you have not made this judgment, that kindness is not a sign that you belong to him. It's a sign that he's calling you to repent and to know him. So what we find is that men can do these things. They can condemn sin in others, which requires recognition of sin and discernment. They can call Jesus Lord, which requires identifying with Jesus mentally. They can prophesy, which requires knowing the word and tasting its power. They can even cast out demons and work miracles all without being known by Jesus. And they will think they are his. And they will be amazed to find themselves excluded. They tasted God's power. They knew his mercy. They lived in the midst of his word. (sighs) Yet they never had Jesus. Never had Jesus. Never possessed Jesus. And it's a scary truth to think that Every Sunday in this room, there are many who will say, Lord, Lord. And they'll say, Nah, I never knew you. They will look like, they will act like discriminating, discerning people, but they have not committed to obedience. So, we come to the end of Jesus speaking and what he says. And he says here, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These who practice lawlessness are the same ones that he has spoken of back in verse 21. He says, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. If we are not choosing to obey Jesus daily, in every action that we take, every step we make, every action that we take with our hands, every deed of our lives, if we are not choosing this way, we are not operating as those who know Jesus as Lord. Don't say, Lord, Lord, if you're a lawless person. Don't say, Lord, Lord. The Bible is very clear. You must obey Jesus if you're going to enter heaven. The grace of God is given you as power to obey him. The grace of God is given you so that you may leave behind the deeds of this world and follow Jesus. And Jesus is encouraging you You have sat here perhaps for years and yet have never finally come to the point beyond a a mental recognition to an actual disposition of the heart that leads your, your feet into dangerous areas for God, that leads your mouth to speak God's truth against the world because you believe in God, even risking your job because you know that Christ is Lord. That have never led you with your hands to help the poor and to take out of your wallet and give to the poor even when you think you can't afford to do it. If you haven't come there, God is saying to you right now, follow me. Stop the mental stuff and embrace the glory of my power by doing it. I encourage you. It is the best life to obey Jesus. I'd like to say that it's that certain things, you know the old saying that tie a tie is like kissing your sister? <laughs> when I say it around my home, the kids all go, yuck. <laughs> and rightfully so, but that's what a tie is. It's, it's unsatisfying. My, it should be unsatisfying to be following Jesus in our heads and not with our hands. The real joy is seeing the power of Jesus that comes through the full obedience to him of someone who's made this judgment. That Jesus is Lord, that he does rule heaven and earth, that he is good, that we can trust him no matter what the risk is, that we can find him. And that being found by him and known by him is the only thing that matters in all the world. I'm known by Jesus. Jesus knows my name. God the Father recognizes me as a child of His. Can you say that? I am known by Jesus. I work to follow Him. I haven't just said things in my head. I'm living for Him. That's faith. That's the grace of God. I encourage you, make this, if you've never done it before, the judgment of your life. I will follow Jesus. I will follow Him. I will know Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the Son of God who speaks to us through it. Give us the power to follow Jesus. Give us the knowledge of him that we need. Father, to trust him, not mentally, not by recognizing and discriminating in our minds, but by bearing out that mental recognition and that mental discernment with the actions of our hands and our feet and the words of our mouth so that we live the life of Jesus before the world. Thank you, Father, for your great Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.